Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of DEI After Five. You know, over the last few years, we've been hearing so much about mental health in the workplace. But how does that intersect with diversity, equity, and inclusion? Today, we're going to talk about it. So my guest today is Dr. Claire Green Ford. She is going to give us all of the insights that she can on this topic because it is such a critical part of the work that we do as DEI practitioners. So Dr. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited and honored to be here. Thank you. So for anyone that may not know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about you and your background and how you got into this work? Absolutely. So my name is Dr. Claire Green Ford. I am an unapologetic social and racial justice warrior and a practitioner who is actively working to decolonize my training and my education for the betterment not only of myself, but for those around me. I got into this work because as a Black woman, as an immigrant, as a mental health practitioner, I experienced so much harm navigating systems of care in America. And I can't think of any workspace I have been in where I have not been harmed. And so when I thought about the impact that it had on my life, the impact that it had on the lives of my loved ones, the impact that it had on the lives of my colleagues, my friends, and my clients, I recognized the importance of not only addressing mental health and wellness for me as an individual, but recognizing that addressing mental health and wellness for colleagues, for friends, and for family on a level that indicated advocacy was important and racial and social justice being in the underpinning of it is the impetus of Dr. Claire Speaks and why I do what I do. I love it. I love it. And you know what I am connected to in what you just said was it's not just about us, but it's about the impact on the greater community and the greater good, right? And so when we were talking before, you know, we talked about um, some of the like eight stages of, of self-care, the eight um, elements of self-care. Is it the elements? Wellness, the dimensions of wellness. Yes, that's what it is. That's what it is. And so one of that is collective care. Um, and, we, and, you know, I had another guest um, in season one, Dr. Rufus Spann, talk about that a little bit. Um, but I want to hear from you, like when you talk about the impact on family and friends in the community, how does what happens to us as individuals impact those that are around us? Yeah, I mean, if we are supposed to be living in community, there's no way that we can't be harmed or concerned or impacted by seeing the suffering of someone that we love, someone we care about. You know, what? while many of us may avert our eyes if we see someone who is housing insecure on the street or who is asking for food because you feel this sense of, oh, I feel bad, maybe I can't give this person money. The reality is, is the closer you are to a situation, the closer you are to a person, the more pain you feel. I can imagine that for anyone, if you see a loved one's ill, your child, your spouse, your close friend, that's going to impact you. And the same thing with mental health and wellness. And even more so because we often feel a sense of helplessness. You know, if somebody has a cold, and they go to the hospital because they may have developed pneumonia, 
you know, you're like, okay, well, maybe they can get, you know, some antibiotics and we can fix this. I can, I can help fix this. But when we're talking about mental health and wellness, there's no easy fix. And so the sense of helplessness and hopelessness that can come up can be quite, you know, unsettling, not only for the person that is experiencing it, but the person that is witnessing it. And so that's what mm -hmm. I talk about in terms of why it is important for that collective care, that model that says it's not just about self-care, because self-care places the onus upon the person who is experiencing it to fix it themselves. But the onus is really on the community. What does that mean? And when we talk about the context of work, the community includes your coworkers, your HR department, your leaders, your colleagues, everybody that needs to be part of the system, EAP, to help support the collective and community care of the individuals that are in that space. You know what? Thank you for the differentiation because you know i talk a lot about self-care and there is some parts of this that we need to own on our you know for ourselves but this community care is this collective um need to want to help and support and and be able to make things better for everyone and so you did a great transition for me in <laughs> into the workplace because you know so many of us see or experience things that cause harm and oftentimes people just sit back and watch, right? Mm -hmm. So we have this bystander effect that happens. I'm not going to say anything because somebody else will say something and then ultimately nothing happens. And that person gets even more harmed because now they're feeling like they're the only or they're, you know, by themselves in whatever has ex they've experienced. And so when we talk about organizations or the workplace doing more around mental health awareness and self-care listening to you it goes beyond just awareness right mm -hmm. in many organizations that's what they do oh let's do a workshop let's do you know whatever we'll have someone come in to talk to us about this we've checked the box we've done it how do we go beyond awareness to action like what does that look like in a corporate space when we're talking about mental health awareness and um, well mental health and the collective support in that space. I think something you just said is the first step going beyond the checkbox, right? Mm -hmm. That that is really part of the challenge that we have in the for-profit and nonprofit world. It's hey, we've done this thing. We've looked at metrics. Metrics are not an indicator of the vastness and the complexity of human experience and human life. If I'm going to say that I'm going to reduce you down to a series of 10 checkboxes, check, we did the one mental health training, check, we did the sexual harassment training, check, we did the intimate partner violence and workplace violence training for compliance purposes, then that means that we are caring more about the appearance rather than actually doing a deeper dive. And that's where I would say organizations truly need to start. Organizations are made up of organisms, us as human beings. And often there's a cognitive dissonance that happens when we talk about organizations. It's the organization needs to fix it. Until we put the onus on the fact that the organization is made up of human beings and human beings make the decision whether or not to honor the dignity and worth of other human beings by the policies and the practices that they put in place, by the accountability measures that they put in place and are consistent in applying across the board in a fair and equitable way, we're not going to get further. Beyond checking the box, what resources are you providing that are tangible and culturally responsive and inclusive of those around you? 
When we think about, for example, a, a birthing person who may have the likelihood of getting postpartum depression or experiencing it, what policies are you putting in place? Often we talk about the divide between equity and equality and mm -hmm. making sure that we have equitable systems in place to support mental health and wellness to me is one of the things that organizations can do. Also bringing in people who are qualified experts. While I know that organizations are have different resources, one of the things I have seen is that often HR is burdened with the responsibility yes. to be the mental health experts and talk about mental health. I have done this work for almost 20 years. I went through extensive training to address mental health and wellness. When I may see someone who may perhaps be internally preoccupied or talking to themselves on the street, I view that very differently because of my training. Mm -hmm. If you are not bringing in people to consistently partner with, not the one time, it is going to be harmful. I can do a quick story. I worked in an organization and I had a staff member who had a severe mental health need. And it took a lot for me to even help the HR department humanize that person because they were frustrated with the behavior. And mm -hmm. it was, you know, we just need to exit this person. And I said, yes, I can understand that because it is disruptive. But if we look at it through the lens of ADA, if we look at it through the lens of, of compassion and self-care, we have to educate not only the HR department, but people around us about how to address severe mental health needs. When we have people in our spaces that have a mental health need that is invisible, we're much more comfortable. The person mm -hmm. that's quiet, quietly suffering with major depression, but just there, we are like, okay, that's fine. But the person that may have an outburst, perhaps because they may be having an episode of mania uh, because of a diagnosis, perhaps of bipolar, we're just like, oh, this person's a problem. Yeah. We have to be able to not only educate, but put appropriate resources. And the only way you do that is by engaging consistently experts in the space and being willing to have resources that are responsive to the cultural and diverse needs of the staff that you work with. Because research indicates that American companies are losing close to $70 billion a year in lost productivity because of our refusal to acknowledge the totality of the human experience, which is our physical and our mental wellness. Dr. Claire, you hit on so much just now. And one of the things that came up for me um, as I'm listening to you was it took me kind of back to the summer of 2020 when a lot of organizations were doing these listening tours, right? And they were just kind of out and yeah, just tell us what's happening, but they were not equipped to deal with what they were hearing. Um, and so one of the things that I know the organization that I was working with at the time, we struggled with racialized trauma right? And understanding that watching those videos over and over again, and it being in the media, you know, has been, was traumatic to so many people. And so we needed therapists to come in that had an ex expertise in racialized trauma in order to be supportive of the employees. So, you know, that was one of the things that came up as we were talking, but we also realized at that time, again, it goes back to the checkbox, Yes, we had EAP, but when we looked at who the providers were, very few of them were people of color. Even fewer of them had an experience in racialized trauma. 
And so we're saying, yes, go to EAP, but then you're also putting them in situations where you're giving them resources that aren't equipped mm -hmm. to handle the situations at hand, right? So again, it goes even deeper to the resources that you just spoke about, having the right resources in order to support the actual needs versus just checking the box to say, yep, we have this resource available to you. And so, you know, what it caused me to do was start to do some research and do some digging on um, therapists that specialized in racialized trauma. So I had a running list of, okay, here's some folks, here's some resources that I know are at least equipped to be able to handle these situations. So I, I appreciate your story and you talking about it from that perspective because it does tell us or it shows us some of the gaps mm -hmm. in, you know, I'll say it this way. It's the intention versus impact, right? You have a good mm -hmm. intention in having this list, but the impact could be harmful if it's not the if it's not resourced properly. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to go into kind of the next level of this part of the conversation in the impact of toxic workplaces on racialized bodies. And I say it that way because we often hear about toxic workplaces. I do a lot around psychological safety and creating environments that are psychologically safe. Um, but what I also do is make sure that we look at it by demographics as well. It's not just, oh, this is safe for everyone. Everyone's not having the same experience. And so we can then be more prescriptive in how we appropriate, how we how we go into the organizations, right? Once we have a better idea of what the demographics are looking at. But what I wanna to talk to you about is we hear about racialized workplaces or toxic workplaces, but the impact on racialized bodies is very different, but very specific. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like? And you know, I can tell my own personal stories of, of having to deal with that, mm -hmm. but talk to, talk to us about what does that look like in the workplace? You know, how may that manifest in ways that racialized bodies can see in themselves? Like, yes, that's what's happened to me, but also talk to us about how that may be seen by others that are in HR or other mm -hmm. parts of the business that may not necessarily know that's what they're looking at. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love this question. And I know we had talked before and it is so complex and how it shows up. So what I'm gonna say, it's gonna give a high level overview, but for every individual, it's going to show up differently yeah. because we process stress in our bodies differently. So the one of the first things I'm gonna say is that the idea of the concept of weathering, which is essentially the aging of our bodies much faster because of experiences of stress, uh, high levels of stress, consistent stress. You know, the idea of stress is any demand on our bodies, good or bad, any demand. When you run, it's a good stress on your body, right? And the more you run, the more consistent you are with running, the better your breathing becomes, the better your form becomes, particularly if you have someone who's coaching you and helping you through that, that, that process. So stress, just like with running, can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that when we talk about long time exposure to stress, even at a low level, that is worse for our bodies than a short burst of a high level of stress. 
And what mm -hmm. we have in this country and in this world is the cumulative effect of the dehumanization of groups of individuals be color, because of the color of their skin, because of racial identity, because of who people love, because of disability status, and all of these intersecting identities, which add compounding trauma to our bodies and to our minds. The mm -hmm. allostatic load is the cumulative experience of stress on our bodies as well. And what we're seeing is that when people are consistently exposed to stress, they could have a host of symptoms beyond mental health. As a mental health practitioner and advocate, I cannot separate the implications for physical well-being. The mind is the computer of the body. The yeah. gut is the second computer of our bodies. And what happens in our minds and our guts can directly impact our overall functioning. Stress wears on every single aspect of our bodies. And what we see showing up in the workplace may be severe depression, severe anxiety. It may be the person who is present, but really not there. Presenteeism and absenteeism. We mm. often focus on absenteeism, right? Oh, this person keeps calling out. But what about presenteeism? I'm physically here, but unable to function. There's lost productivity sometimes of over 50% because of the experience of depression. Depression is the leading disability in this world. At every point in our lives, we will experience clinical depression between two to three times or more in our lifetime, every single human being on this planet, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of race, ethnicity, religion, we will experience depression. So it is a common human experience. But mm. when we talk about the dehumanization of individuals because of the racialized experience, then we are talking about more and more incidences of depression. And depression and anxiety are a married couple. They always come together. Wow. When we look at the implications in the workplace beyond presenteeism, absenteeism. We may see people that have outbursts. We mm -hmm. may see people that are quiet. We may see people that are making a lot of mistakes on their work. We may see people that are unable to finish that project. And if people only care about profits, my, my charge to you is that if you only care about profits and your model is profits over people, without your people, you have no profits. You have nothing. Right. You have nothing. So it is the onus is upon organizations and leaders. And everybody is a leader in the organization. Yes. From the receptionist to the people who are helping with the environmental stability of your space, to the CEO and to the workers. Everybody is a leader in the space. If everybody is, is responsible for the wellness of those around them, I think we can get to much better, healthier outcomes. Sustainability mm -hmm. of your organization, the legacy of your organization is dependent on how much you care and value those who make up your organization. And I think this is where a lot of corporations, nonprofit and for-profit, are missing the mark in addressing the mental health and wellness of the staff that they have, as well as the consumers of their products. You know what? You you have been reading my mind. I literally yesterday started sketching out some thoughts. And one of them was, you know, an organization's superpower is the upskilling of their people managers, right? And their people leaders. Um, because what I'm seeing is exactly what, what I'm hoping for is exactly what you're saying, right? It's having people, people managers, people leaders take the onus and responsibility of the wellness of the organization, the employees, you know, everyone 
as a part of their job, it's not just about making, selling, breaking widgets. Mm -hmm. It's the people side of things that is going to keep them going. And when you talked about the legacy, that's the legacy. It's the people. Um, and you were dealing with so much turnover and people not feeling like, oh, I'm not feeling this organization. It's not necessarily because it's a bad place to work in general. It may be because they don't support mental health or it's because they see you as just a cog in the wheel and not as a person. Mm -hmm. And so those are the types of things that are so much more important now that we're in this post-pandemic workplace, right? People are looking to prioritize themselves in the humanness of the workplace more so than the profit. So I, you know, I truly appreciate you saying that. And then I also love your definition of, you know, stress just being a demand on the body, be it positive or negative. And, you know, in my situation, it was again that long term over time. And what I saw chemically was my cortisol levels skyrocketed, hair started falling out. You talk about the gut started getting ulcers, you know, being run to the emergency room, you know, I don't know how many times, I think it was like three or four times. Mm. Um, and so again, how it manifests in my body was very different, but I also understood that I needed to re remove myself from that situation. And once I did, I realized, okay, I need to create an environment that doesn't allow me to get into that space again. Mm -hmm. so when I experience stress, one, I can identify it very quickly, but two, it goes back to some of that self, the things that I need to do, right. In order to man maintain and manage that. But then also what can I ask of my community to help support that as well too. So I'm, I'm loving this whole conversation because the onus isn't just on one person. It truly is about the community as a whole being invested in the success of everyone. Um, so I, I love that. One of the other things that we talked about, and I wanted to make sure that we get into this conversation, is how do we counterbalance this stress? How do we counterbalance um, this trauma You know, when we are experiencing? What does that look like? Because I think so many people, and I, you know, I alluded to it just now, we just totally remove ourselves from the situation, but we don't take the time to understand what it was in that situation that caused us to be there, to, you know, to feel the way that we did in the first place. And we get back into another situation that's very similar. And so can you talk to us about some ways that people can counterbalance these experiences so that they don't find themselves back into it again? Yeah, I think the first thing is what you did, recognizing that something was off, right? And I so appreciate you sharing about your experience with, you know, the ulcers and the hair loss. And those are definitely very real symptoms. Reproductive health issues, uh, miscarriages, inability to conceive, uh, you know, heart challenges, um, early death, migraines, nausea, ulcers, all of these things are the result of this ongoing stress. And I don't think that we acknowledge it. And particularly when we talk about racialized bodies, we have been told to deny the existence of racism yes. forever. We could, we're seeing the, the backlash with anti-woke movements, which is 
mind blowing to me because the definition of woke is an awareness of social injustice and a desire to re remedy those injustices. And we literally have legislation that says we are against you being aware about social injustices right. and working to remedy those social injustices. Right. And people are just like, oh, OK. Yeah. So the first right. Step is acknowledging something isn't right and we many of us know something isn't right and mm -hmm. i balance the fact that it is often a privilege to be even able, able to in a space to say i i have to get out and i can get out right now because many racialized bodies are yeah. not in that position yeah. and that is why people continue the other thing is working to say your story and acknowledge your story and reject mm -hmm. the gaslighting because gaslighting is one of the number one things that we do to ourselves and people do to us to yes. tell us that it's not that bad or it's, it's us. Yeah. And that is something that we continue to experience. When you recognize what's happening to you, getting community and when I keep, when I say community, particularly for people of the global majority, I am talking about community that is culturally responsive, culturally honoring, culturally curious, culturally respectful, and culturally celebrating. Mm. That is the necessity that we have to carry, right? As yeah. cultural diverse bodies, as people of intersecting bodies, we have to make sure that our wellness needs are framed in that context. Are you able to seek out providers that are people who will honor you? Do I believe that everybody needs to be of your culture, your religion, your background to provide quality care for you? No, but I do believe mm -hmm. everybody needs to be culturally responsive, culturally curious, culturally humble, culturally respectful, and culturally celebratory. And in America, we know that that's not the case for many people, right? We know yeah. that my healthcare team is entirely made up of 12 individuals of the global majority, mostly 12 women identified individuals of the global majority. My dentist is the only male identified person of the global majority, and I love him. But the reality right. of anybody else, and until I had a team of women that were Black, Indigenous, Asian, I did not receive quality care. Mm. I did not receive care that was responsive to my cultural identity as a Barbadian woman, as an immigrant. And that is why I am saying it is important that part of our self-care and a radical self-love, radical self-acceptance, radical self-celebration includes starting with not only acknowledging what you're going through, but starting to seek circles that are going to honor you. One of the other things that I will say is finding things that are supportive of your individual needs. What works for me yes. is not going to work for you. Yes. Yeah. I need high energy workouts. I am from the West Indies. I need Soka. I need Soka. I, I do. Hey, hey, I need Soka. <laughs> I can't, you know, I, I just, it's, it's going to happen. I, I need yes. to be in that state. That's the thing that soca and gospel, I always tell people when people think you're an angry black woman, no, I'm a clear black woman. I'm a direct black woman. I'm a black woman that is firmly rooted in my spirituality and who's who I am and who I belong to. I live and operate between soca and gospel. Those are very happy spaces. I can't be mad. Yes, I love it. But even if I was mad, I have the right to be because yeah. it is spectrum of my humanity means I get to be mad and I get to be joy filled. I get to be sad. I get to be curious. I get to be happy. Give yourself the permission to experience the fullness of your humanity because you have been denied the spectrum of your humanity your whole life. 
Also work to root out your own bias and racism in yourself. Ooh. We carry a lot of anti-Blackness mm -hmm. across the global majority, regardless of yeah. where we come from. We carry that colorism, anti-Blackness, the groups against each other. Oh, if we come here, we work harder, we work better. No, work to decolonize your own understanding of yourself and take back your power. Include things that are physically activating, whatever that is for you. There's research to suggest that exercise can have positive results on depression, Some for some people more so than medications. Get into nature. There's a mm. lot of research to suggest and a lot of it more prominent since the onset of the pandemic about the benefits of being in nature, going for walks, looking at the butterflies, smelling the, the, the pollen, not me. Pollen is not my friend. But for those of you who can do it, <laughs> me either. Right. listen, it's not my friend. But doing those things, but also joining different groups, right? Whether mm -hmm. that is a religious group, whether that is, for me, I'm in a sorority, being part of a sorority. You don't, you know, whether that is being, you know, in community with your neighbors, with your family. Maybe it's listening to a podcast and going on a walk. Maybe it's going yeah. on a walk while you talk to your friend who's on the other side of the, the world. Whatever yeah. those things are for yourself, do it. And if you're not able to walk and if you're not able to move, be still doing those things that are going to honor you, listening to uplifting yeah. music, watching movies that are going to make you laugh, denying the flood of media that tells you you're not okay. I refuse to watch things that are going to be traumatic for me. As yeah. somebody who is in a racialized body and a genderized body, I will not watch things that people being killed on screen, people being choked, people, I, I won't watch those things because it is too yeah. activating because I experience racial battle fatigue, just like many of us do. So I think those are some of the things that we can do to help the cultural responsiveness to who we are and how we can support our own health and wellness and that of those around us. And lastly, yeah. boundaries are your friend. Ooh, yes, yes. <laughs> No is a full sentence and no is translatable in every single language across the globe. You know, Dr. Claire, you've hit on so much and so many things that, you know, I've had other guests, you know, dive into some of those, you know, boundaries. I've had um, Dr. Ayana talking about that and nature. I talk about that. I actually have a, a 60 day guide to self-care where I talk about taking walks and love it, you know, taking all of those things in. And then even just the decolonizing of ourselves and the Caribbean. I've had two guests, um, another Bayesian sister, you know, Sharon Hurley Hall on and you know, oh, just she's awesome. You know, just understanding the the power in honoring ourselves culturally. Mm -hmm. You know, um I don't think we even talked about, I didn't even know you were Bayesian, right? So <laughs> born, you know, born there. And so there's so there's a connection for me. That's my sense of peace. You know, when I get off the plane, Grantly Adams, Listen. it's a whole new world for me. Um, but again, those are the ways that I fill my cup and I make sure that I do that in how many ever, you know, ways that I can. Um, and so again, you know, you're talking about Soka and that's just, my, my listeners know, like, that's a huge part of me and, and who I am. So I Welcome appreciate wellness. <laughs> yes, I, I truly appreciate that. So, you know, we are, you know, coming at the end of time. 
but you that was such a wonderful transition into the importance of people doing what they need to do to fill their cup. Mm-hmm. And so how do you specifically, you know, you talked about some of the ways that you specifically fill your cup. So I think it's so important that you shared that because, and you said it too, it looks differently for everybody, mm-hmm. right? And so making sure we do it in a way that again, fills us so that we can give from our overflow versus constantly having to, okay, how am I going to fill my cup? How am I going to do this? And we're in this rush. And again, that causes another level of stress when we're mm-hmm. trying to do that. So I appreciate you you sharing those things. How can people get in contact with you if they want to follow up with you? It is easiest to find me on LinkedIn right now. My website is being redeveloped, but I will definitely let you know that when it when it's fully launched again. Uh, but you can find me on LinkedIn and I'm really happy to connect and, and collaborate with people and help organizations understand how to infuse wellness in a way that is culturally responsive, particularly healthcare organizations and social service and care organizations and corporate organizations, really helping people and individuals who make up the organizations understand how to value and honor the individuals that are the organization and that they work with. You know, when you said, you know, while I did talk about how I fill my cup, one of the biggest things for me is my spirituality, my relationship with God, the importance of that relationship, arguing with God, telling God I'm mad at God, being fully vulnerable and telling God when I don't want to talk to God. And whatever that looks like for you, it doesn't matter. I identify as Christian, but this is not about Christianity. This is about whatever sense, source of, of power that is above you that you believe in, if you believe in that at all. And for me, that blend of being able to be fully vulnerable and raw and also having a circle of friends. I have an incredible black and brown sister circle made up of women of the global majority. And that is one of the most healing, restorative, restful, validating spaces I could ever be in. And I am so grateful for it, whether it's my twin sister, whether or not it's my husband, whether or not it is my friends, my family, my sorority sisters, whoever it is, being surrounded in community with people who I don't have to put on a mask for, people that when I say, I'm okay, say, Claire, cut the BS, what's really going on? People that are willing to pray with me, pray over me, pray for me, intercede on my behalf, laugh with me, cry with me. Those are the things that are make up my wellness circle because we need many tools. The dimensions of wellness include physical wellness, spiritual wellness, social wellness, all of those different aspects. And you have to have different tools and resources. If you're only using one tool to fix a broken pipe, right? it's going to break very quickly. You need a tool and different resources because at some point you may not be able to tap into your spirituality, but you may be able to tap into your friends and you may not be able to tap into your friends, but you may be able to tap into your own individual wellness. You spoke about Grantley Adams and I'm identifying with you when I, I was home, you know, uh, in my, you know, for the Christmas break, when I am getting to the plane and I start seeing our island every single time tears are flowing from me because Mm. the sense of relief that I have just to see our island before it touches, I feel home. Barbados is the first place that I, you know, cut my knee and my, my blood went into the soil. (laughs) I am of the soil. I grew up there. I came here and going home just as when I leave home, I am distraught because home, I can breathe. Yeah. Where can you breathe? 
I feel it. And where can you breathe in life affirming? Yeah. Space that and support. That's what home is for me. And being in the ocean <sighs> and with the sun shining on me, that is the place I feel most grounded and most connected to God. Yeah. Find the spaces where you feel most connected to your source of power and your humanity. That is how I engage my wellness. I love it. Dr. Claire, thank you so much for being here, being with us, sharing so much knowledge. Um, you know, ah, that last part, it was just like being in community because it's, it's you're speaking my language, um, especially being in the water. So thank you so much for joining us. I just hope people got tons of information, lots of nuggets that were shared. Um, and everyone, thank you all for joining us for this week's episode of DEI After Five. Um, be sure to share this episode with those that are part of your community or hopefully in adjacent communities because this work truly does take a village. So again, thank you for being here with us. Find us here every Tuesday at 5.15 p.m. Eastern right here on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform. And until next time, have a good one.